What is up, everybody? Welcome to another week, another episode of Convince Me. I am Andy Rutherford, not joined as always by Mr. Bennett and Mr. Elrod. It's been a crazy week, another crazy week uh, for us. As we, as I mentioned in the intro last week, Mr. Bennett, of course, has welcomed a new child into the home, so his hands have been a little tied. Um, my household, including myself, have dealt with a stomach bug throughout the early part of this week that's kind of left me out of commission for part of the week. And Mr. Elrod's been busy with some sort of, I don't know, secret society for people with large heads. So, no new episode this week. However, I mentioned in the intro last week that there were those seven lost episodes, so to speak. Those seven episodes we did before we officially became a podcast. Last week, I dropped the first one, our pilot episode, uh, which has got pretty good reviews, and I appreciate that from you guys. So, this week, what I'm going to do... I'm going to drop the second episode we recorded, our first musical episode. Uh, This is really the first one where we got long-winded. And uh, since then, we have have tried to make a concerted effort to keep things shorter. But this was one of the first signs that we needed to put that mandate in place. Uh, Allison Chains, Nirvana, a topic that myself and Mr. Bennett are both pretty passionate about. So we got a little long-winded. Again, it's really cool to me to go back and and listen to these old air episodes to see just how far we've come uh, in this last year. So guys, I hope you enjoy this. This is really episode two uh, for us, but it's going to be the Convince Me Callback 2. And hopefully next week we will be back in business we've got a topic lined up we've had it lined up for a few weeks now uh we just haven't got to record it yet hopefully we get that done for next week and i don't have to give you all three callbacks in a row next week can be fresh new content but hey if you haven't been following us in our early days on facebook you haven't went to the youtube a lot this is still new to you uh so that's that's pretty cool that we're getting that out there to a bigger audience since we, I don't know that I did that in this in this particular episode, so I am going to re- very quickly uh, go through the weekly shield. Make sure you're following us on all of our socials, guys. Facebook, our most active page, facebook.com slash convince me show. Uh, occasionally you will get previews over there uh, before the episode drops every week. Not every week we drop those, and we may stop those all together soon, so make sure you're checking those out. Um, we can be found on Twitter at Convince Me Show. Occasionally, we let you guys pick the topic. We'll put a poll up. When we put those polls up, we put them up over on Twitter at Convince Me Show. We're on the gram, Instagram, Convince Me Show over there as well. And make sure you're checking out our ever-growing YouTube page, tinyurl.com slash show. You remember I mentioned last week, and I think the week before, how that Mike Tyson, Muhammad Ali episode that we did months ago was taking off? Yeah, we're at like 70,000 views on that one video. I don't know why. I'm not questioning it, but I don't know why. Um, the rest of our videos are nowhere near that many. And maybe to some people, 70,000 views isn't a huge number. To us, that is a massive number. Uh, so we're pretty appreciative of it. And we wish you would head over to YouTube 
and uh, make sure you get the rest of our videos to 70,000 views. Because if enough people start turn tuning into the YouTube, we can actually make money for this show. Because right now, purely labor of love. But that's exactly what it is. A labor of love. We love to do it. Uh, we're sad we haven't got to do it in a couple weeks. Hopefully next week we'll be back. But until then, this week, guys, thank you for everything you do. Enjoy. Convince me callback number two, Allison Chains versus Nirvana. Thanks, guys. Much love. And until next week, peace. Hey, what's up, everybody? Um, it's us. We're back again. Uh, the Convince Me show podcast. We'll eventually roll it over into a podcast. Uh, but, you know, we're back again. We decided to do a second one. Uh, you guys actually gave us – we have trios and trios of fans – uh, you guys gave us some good feedback. You seem to enjoy it. So we decided to come back and do it again. Uh, joined again by these two gentlemen, uh, Bennett and Elrod. Guys, how's it going? Going good. What's going on? You mean you'd have me back again? I'm shocked. Yeah, it wasn't my first choice, but, you know, you seem <laughs> to be available. Um, if you haven't checked us out yet, we have a page that, this video will actually be posted on. Um, we are, I launched it today and we're at over a hundred likes and that's without Elrod contributing at all uh, to the promotion of this thing. So uh, hopefully by the time we drop this video, we're recording, uh, we'll break down the fourth wall here. We're recording on Monday night. This will be dropping. Uh, as you're watching this, it'll be Tuesday night. Uh, hopefully we'll be up even more by then. But guys, if you like this, let us know what you like. Uh, tell your friends about it. Uh, send your friends to the page. Like the page. Share the videos. Uh, let's see what we can do with this because, honestly, it's pretty fun to do. Um, so uh, here we are yet again uh, tonight uh, for this episode. The roles have changed a bit uh, for the one of the very, very few times, one of the very, very few things. Uh, there's a disagreement on, but me and Mr. Bennett here will be debating each other, uh, going mm -hmm. against each other. Um, and uh, our topic tonight is best grunge band. Uh, I will be representing and again winning uh, for Allison Chains, uh, although the deck is stacked against me. And uh, Bennett Heavily. will be on behalf of Nirvana and Elrod. Judge Elrod will be uh, moderating, mediating. Elrod, you got anything to say before we jump into it? Does that scare you that you're putting this much trust in me and, uh, to dash your hopes of uh, not saying that Alice in Chains is better than Nirvana? I, I know my odds of winning anything with you as the mediator is not good, uh, especially with this type of argument. But, you know, underdogs win sometimes. Sometimes Jordan scores 60 uh, after only playing seven minutes a game for the last uh, few minutes uh, uh, or last few games of the year or whatever. I don't know. That was a terrible – just go. <laughs> Before we get into the topic tonight, this is Seattle 90s grunge music. And what goes together with grunge – and this is a courtroom. Normally, we're, we're a judge would be wearing a robe. So tonight – if you'll indulge me, plaid is the new robe. 
So I will be putting this on. I don't have a gavel. I do have a pen. So that will be the gavel. And I'll be putting on my robe. Ready for some opening arguments from my counselors here. Do you have your heroin needle? I do not. I do not. That would be that plus uh, some Seattle coffee would be the perfect that, outfit so, to this. The needle so no should be your gavel. Yes. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> We're supposed to do it. Never mind. We won't go there. <laughs> so I have a number between one and twenty. The person that gets closest gets to determine whether they want to go first or second in opening statements. I'll start with you, Bennett. What would you like to be your number? Since it is 90s and it is Seattle, I'm going to go with number three for Alex Rodriguez. Andy? I'm going to play the odds and say number four. <laughs> <laughs> Both of you were incredibly <laughs> not right, but 16 is a number. So, Andy, you have one. Would you like to go first or second in opening statements? I will allow Mr. Bennett to go first. Perfect. I would have picked first anyway, so that works out. There we go. Convince me, Sir Bennett. All right, why, all right. is, why is Nirvana better than Alice in Chains? Right off the bat, I'm going to hit you with a couple of facts. These are 100% facts. And by the end of this podcast, I will prove to you that they are 100% facts. Number one, Nirvana is one of the greatest bands of all time. Of all time. They're one of the greatest bands. They're not like a niche band. They're not just a grunge band in the 90s. They're one of the greatest bands. And also, they are one of the most influential bands of all time. There's been several artists that have used Nirvana lyrics and quoted them in their songs, such people as Lana Del Rey, Blink-182, uh, Justin Timberlake, and Jay-Z. So they have a broad range of people that have used Nirvana in their lyrics. This band came to represent a entire generation of people. I'm talking about Generation X. And they pretty much altered the course of music when they like exploded onto the scene in the early 90s. They basically introduced people to alternative music and they really pushed it to the forefront of music. That's where I'm gonna stop for right now. Okay, Andy. You have the floor. All right. First of all, Bennett sounded very attorney-like there, and I'm kind of proud because he's the only one that hasn't sat through law school of the three of us here. Um, but this is, is probably a strange way to go about opening arguments, but nothing that Mr. Bennett said was wrong. As a matter of fact, He's absolutely right. Nirvana is one of the greatest bands of all time. They are. Oh, should we, should we just of, end this now then? <laughs> zip it. They are one of the most influential bands of all time. But that doesn't necessarily mean 
that they are quote unquote the best. They are one of for sure. And what's crazy is when we get, when we look at grunge, uh, what we label grunge, those bands that came out of Seattle of the early nineties, you basically have your big four. You've got Nirvana, you've got Allison Chains, you've got Pearl Jam, you've got Soundgarden. Those, there, there were more, but those are your big four. And to be completely honest, you can make points for all four of those bands. And I realize that not only because Elrod is the mediator and will likely not pick me to win anything, but when you say grunge, you think Nirvana. When kids listen to Nirvana, they hear Nirvana, they know smells like teen spirit, just like everybody else does. They think that means they know grunge and they know 90s grunge metal. Because Nirvana, as much as Kurt Cobain didn't want to be, was the face of it, was the mainstream of the grunge. But to somebody that likes New Day, or New Day, I'm thinking wrestling now, to somebody that likes Green Day, does that mean they like all punk music? No, everybody likes Green Day. Just because somebody likes Nirvana, does that mean that they're a grunge fanatic? No, everybody likes Nirvana. But when we narrow it down, to this particular genre, what this genre is about, what makes up the genre of grunge, and who did it best, not necessarily who's known best for it, but who did it best. What you're going to be shown tonight, Judge, in your plaid flannel, is that this counselor in his blue and orange flannel is going to show you that Allison Chains was the best grunge band of the night. Not the most well-known, but the best. All right. Well, let's get into the meat of this. And I want to start off with you, Andy. Tell me about Allison Chains band members and tell me, tell the audience about maybe their musical talents. I think the best way to do this, and I hope I don't step on Bennett's foot, foots. I can't speak tonight. I don't want to step on these footsies. Uh, I hope I don't step on Bennett's feet here, but I'm actually partly going to help his argument, but I'm also going to crush the soul of what I assume is the crux of his argument. <laughs> so let's look at it by each instrument. Let's look at the bass guitarists who in the in the crux, the prime of Allison Chains was Mike Starr, uh, left the band in 93, was replaced by Mike Inez, both fantastic bass players. Uh, exhibit A, to listen, listen to this opening bass lick. I hope it plays well. Iconic bass lick, iconic bass player. But I'm going to go ahead and give, as far as if we're going by instruments, I'm going to give the nod. I'm going to just go ahead and concede this one to Bennett <laughs> because Chris, well, Nolan, as I'm sure Bennett will tell you, was fantastic. 
Now let's get in more of, I'm led with my weak points. Let's get stronger as I go. Uh, when you look at the drums, you've got Sean Kenny on the drums. And when you look at the drummers of grunge, today I'm talking about Sean Kenny. Bennett's going to be talking about Dave Grohl. Uh, you've got Matt Cameron, who played with Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. And if we're being technical, probably the best drummer of the grunge era. But you're automatically, you hear Dave Grohl, you're going to want to think Dave Grohl. But here's the thing. Dave Grohl is a rock god and has been for 20 years. But he wasn't 30 years ago. And Dave Grohl was a good drummer. He was a great drummer, probably the perfect drummer for Nirvana. But I think it's a push. And I'm going to show you Exhibit B, and I promise these are the only two times I'm going to, to music here. But I want you to hear the opening of this song. That's not drumming. That's an entire percussion session in one song. Dave Grohl is like Animal of the Muppets. He's fantastic. He's loud. But technically, um, you know what? I'll even say that's a push because Sean Kenny was perfect for Alice in Chains. Dave Grohl was perfect for Nirvana. But now All let's right. I'm not done. <laughs> you chill. This is we're my courtroom. We're getting to the meat of the matter here, and I promise the rest of my points will be much shorter. The face of grunge, Kurt Cobain, lead singer extraordinaire, guitar playing. Let's look at the guitar playing first. He was a good guitar player, Kurt Cobain was. But Jerry Cantrell is the definitive grunge guitarist. Cobain was good. His guitar playing wasn't his strongest point. Jerry Cantrell, if you're building a perfect grunge band, a vast majority of people want Jerry Cantrell on the drum. All right, let's look at vocals. The incredible Lane Staley, the incredible Kurt Cobain, both distinct, both iconic voices, both highly recognizable. And if we're looking at those two head to head, you can, I would pick Blaine Staley, but it, it's, it's really, really close. And that's a very biased edge I have. I couldn't argue Cobain. I mean, I couldn't say you're wrong if you say Cobain's a letter, better singer than Lane Staley. But here's, we're not looking at Staley versus Cobain. We're looking at Nirvana versus Allison Chains. And there's one thing that Allison Chains has that I think defines exactly who they are as a band. And that is the harmonies that Lane Staley and Jerry Cantrell have. I knew a guy who studied musical theory at Belmont and he's very much a country music guy. He's very much a little bit of classic rock, but he's a friend of my brother's talking to him one night. I don't, I like music. I don't know a lot of the technicalities of music. I just know it sounds good. But as he was pointing out to me, the harmonies that come out of Lane Staley and Jerry Cantrell seeing together what Allison Chains is most known for is 
like musically impossible. What they can put together, their harmonies reach pitches and ranges that should not be met in one cohesive voice that they have together. So if we're going to look at Lane Staley versus Kurt Cobain, I'm probably beat. But we're looking at Nirvana versus Allison Chains. And while Kurt Cobain, fantastic singer, heartfelt singer, iconic singer, there's nobody that can touch the harmonies of Cantrell and Staley. So we're looking at vocals, Allison Chains, guitar, Allison Chains. I gave bass to Nirvana and then a push on the drums. That's why if we're looking at the band members, Allison Chains. That was very long-winded. You should have stopped me. I should. I tried to, but uh, you were in contempt of court. Uh, so, um, <laughs> Bennett, tell me about Nirvana, their band members, and he's given you some leeway here. He said he's conceded some points. How about you focus on the ones that he didn't concede? Well, Mr. Rutherford pretty much handed out all my points for me, so I'm going to try to hit on some of the stuff that he didn't touch. It's not a whole lot of meat left on the bone, Sorry. but just to kind of give them kind of a formal introduction, unless you've lived under a rock for the last 30, 35 years, everybody knows who Kurt Cobain is. I'm not really going to introduce him, but obviously he was the vocals, lead guitar, lyrics. He was pretty much there their face. Then you've got Chris Novoselic, who was the bass guitarist. And then, of course, you've got Dave Grohl, who was the most popular of their drummers. They had other drummers before him. They even recorded one album before him. But none of those guys really kind of had that edge and kind of push them the way that he did. So for all intents and purposes, I'm going to go with Dave Grohl as he is the most popular of their drummers. I'm gonna first start with Chris. I feel like of the trio, he does not get near enough credit as he should for what he did for Nirvana. Um, just a little fun fact, those two actually met back in high school and Cobain heard him playing like outside of his room or outside of his house or something like that because he was friends with his brother and Kurt was trying to get him to play with him, be in his band, and Avon gave him like a tape. And Chris at first wouldn't really kind of, he was like, okay, whatever, wouldn't really give him the time of day. But then after hearing to after hearing him, he was like, okay, yeah, we got something here. So that's just kind of a little fun fact that those two um, kind of got together around high school. And Kurt actually basically kind of begged and pleaded for Chris to join him be part of his vision that would become Nirvana. Those two are the founding members. They went by a couple of names before that, but just for this sake, they're Nirvana. He is like the anchor of the trio. If I had to kind of put him and kind of put a definition on him, he really would emphasize Dave Grohl's drums, especially when he was like on his cymbals and, um, he really kind of helped Kurt push his vocals and would push his uh, chords on his guitar. So he was kind of like the unsung hero of the three. He really excelled at descending bass slides 
And one little thing that was very subtle that he did that a lot of people don't really pick up on, they hear it, but they don't really notice it is whenever, obviously Nirvana is known for going from very dynamic shifts in their tone where they might start out with a song very, very quiet and very calm and then start, Kurt will start yelling or screaming and then the the whole dynamic of this song shifted. And what Chris would do is he would be the one that kind of transitioned that song where you start hearing, you'll hear the bass go from one dynamic to another and you're like, oh, they're fixing to shift dynamics like they always do. I feel like that's one thing that he did really good in and not a lot of people really noticed that some of the songs that he did that in would be like lithium where it starts out kind of really really tranquil and then it just out of nowhere it's like boom you know then they start rocking out also sliver and also smells like teen spirit i don't really like talking about smells like teen spirit but we will be forced to a lot tonight so that's just some of the things that he did that mr rutherford didn't touch on that I feel like Chris doesn't really get a whole lot of credit for. Okay. Um, moving on, Dave Grohl, he joined Nirvana, like I said, kind of in late 1990. They'd already uh, released Bleach, um, and they just kind of felt like they needed another direction. And uh, the band that Dave Grohl was in kind of fizzled out. And he was kind of introduced to the band. And Kurt said after hearing, immediately after hearing Dave Grohl, he knew, boom, this is the guy that we need. Um, technically, uh, Dave Grohl is the most proficient and versatile member of the group by far, by far. Um, he was actually ranked 27th greatest drummer of all time, which was kind of surprising, I thought, because, I mean, Dave even said that he's, not really considered himself a drummer. His passion was for the guitar and vocals and lyrics, not drumming. So for him to be that good of a drummer speaks a lot about his versatility for the group. Um, of course, he went on to be the founder, the lead vocalist, the guitarist, and the songwriter for the Foo Fighters mm -hmm. after Nirvana disbanded, dismembered, whatever you want to call it in 94. So it just speaks a lot about what Dave Grohl did for Nirvana. He really kind of pushed them. And if you listen to Bleach, and then you listen to Nevermind, and then In Utero, you can tell the big, huge difference in their style. It's like somebody got behind them and just started pushing them to be better. That was Dave Grohl. And then lastly, uh, Kurt Cobain, obviously he was the voice, he was the face, he was the heart and soul and the artistic vision. He was everything behind the group. Obviously he played the guitar and vocals. Um, like Rutt said, um, guitar wasn't his strength and he was serviceable, but he by no means was a, a great guitarist. Um, his strength though was on power chords and low riffs and he was able to use those to his advantage with his vocals to convey his message and get his point across in his lyrics, which that's what 
he's known for. I'll give Rutt the, the the point on the harmonies, and there's no way he can touch that. He Kurt was a great vocalist, a great singer, but by no means did he have that kind of talent that's like unworldly talent. I feel like where Kurt Cobain has a slight edge, though, is in his ability to convey his lyrics the way that he did. I feel like nobody does lyrics the way that Kurt Cobain does. So that's where I'd give Kurt a slight edge there. Okay. Um, let's move on. In, I'll start off with you, Andy. You tell me, what is Allison Chain's most notable album? You skipped one. I'm coming back to that. I'm coming oh, back. Okay. You can't change the format hey, I made. I'm the judge. <laughs> I'm the judge. Don't you see this robe I have on? This robe in my gavel. So I'm the judge. I make the rules. You're in my courtroom. Tell me what the most notable album is for Allison Chains. Um, the most notable album for Allison Chains is going to be their second album which is their, their first album, Facelift, was the first grunge album to ever be certified gold. I just want to throw that out there. It was much better than Nirvana's first album. We won't go into Nirvana's second album because Bennett's probably about to do that in depth. Um, but Allison Chain's most notable album was Dirt. Uh, it was certified quadruple platinum, meaning it had over 8 million copies sold. Uh, Steve Huey of All Music praised the album as a major artistic statement and the closest they ever came to recording a flat-out masterpiece. Uh, and Chris Gill of Guitar World called Dirt huge and foreboding, yet eerie and intimate and sublimely dark and brutally honest. There were five top 30 singles that came off of Dirt. This album got them the opening gig uh for Ozzy Osbourne's No More Tears tour it was a huge album it was a huge success and honestly as one of the reviewers said it's a brutally honest album it's a dark album it is a window into what the band was at the time which was a bunch of guys using heroin <laughs> addicted to heroin but there was no hiding it it's one of the most brutally honest albums you're going to see and it may not necessarily project them in a positive light considering where they were at the time but the music is honest the music is reflective and if you want to look at seeing a band for who they are um it's definitely dirt i wouldn't say dirt is my favorite album uh, but it is hands down uh, their most successful, like I said, five top 30 singles, quadruple platinum. Uh, but at this point, I am likely about to lose. Uh, so I'm on to Bennett. Wow, he's giving you a lot of points himself, Bennett. Um, he set me up for failure, I know it. I'm just trying okay. to hammer where I think I have a chance and where I don't, I'm just letting it go. <laughs> You've got something up your sleeve. So tell me, uh, Sir Bennett, what is Nirvana's most notable album? Okay, believe it or not, their most notable album is Bleach. Okay, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, it should come to no shock to anybody that their most notable album is Nevermind by far. 
um, which they only had three official albums, so there wasn't really much to choose from. But like Rut, it's their second album where they struck gold or platinum, wherever you'll call it. Um, Nevermind is considered one of the most influential albums of all time. Um, this album dropped late 1991 and was an instant success. Like out of nowhere, boom, Nirvana on the scene, which shifted them from like the underground band to just like right in the forefront of all music. Um, this was um, their most polished all around solid band. It's full of amazing songs. Of course, there smells like teen spirit. Everybody knows. Everybody's probably heard lithium. They've also got breed, come as you are, in bloom, poly. All these are iconic songs that you've heard on the radio. Um, they've been on your video games, your rock star, your guitar hero, all that. But there's also the ones that are the hidden gems that you really need to go back and listen to once you kind of get out of the face like oh, I've got to hear their I've got to hear like their most popular songs and you hear them you're like oh yeah it's awesome but where the beauty of Nevermind is is some of those lesser known tracks that are on that album songs like Drain You, Lounge Act, On a Plane those are amazing amazing songs that nobody talks about and that's kind of like where the beauty is in that album it's not not all, not every song is a huge number one hit, and that's fine. It doesn't have to be. These are great songs. Um, like I said, it dropped in 1991. Like I think around, I think it's around September of 91 is when the album dropped, and it was selling 400,000 copies a week. And by January of 92, it already took the number one spot on Billboard's Top 100. And um, just a little bit about, I'm not going to touch on a whole lot more about it, um, but it was named the number one best album of the 90s by some magazine. They're called Rolling Stones. I think they're credible. I'm not sure. Um, that just kind of speaks for itself when you think of all the good music that we had in the 90s, all the good music that we had, Rolling Stones ranked this the number one best album. So to me, that kind of speaks for itself. Okay, thank you for that. My next question is kind of a combination question. You may, an album may be notable and a song may be notable, but in terms of your own opinion, I want you each to give your favorite album of your client and your favorite song. You can do that in the same answer if you'd like. And I'll start off with you, Bennett. You tell me what is your favorite Nirvana album, and what is your favorite song, and why? This is going to be an extremely long answer, so just buckle up. My favorite <laughs> album, um, I really do appreciate what In Utero was. Um, it was, like, a lot more darker and a lot more raw, and it's full of cryptic messages. That, uh, cryptic messages, and that's truly what Nirvana was, but... And it was also number seven album of the 90s, by the way, number seven. And it's not even my favorite album. Um, I'm going to have to go with Nevermind. I feels like it's so cliche, but I remember being 11, 12 years old. I was in the sixth grade and I got the Nevermind CD. 
I remember that too. That was, yeah, yeah. Four years after Kurt Cobain's suicide, I mean, I'm sure that I had heard Smells Like Teen Spirit maybe on the radio or on TV or something, but I was way too into like country music and Dwight Yoakam and all that. But kind of when you kind of reach that age around 11 or 12, you kind of start venturing out more into music that you haven't really been exposed to. And you kind of try to figure out who you are. And um, really, I started, like I said, I started listening to that in sixth grade. And here we are now, I'm 33 years old, and I still listen to this album all the time, nonstop. Um, I'd say probably not only is Nevermind my favorite Nirvana album, it's my favorite album of all time. Um, like I mentioned before, there's so many good songs on it um, that at least probably half or three fourths of the songs that are on Nevermind have been like my favorite song at some point in my life. Um, I just feel like no matter what kind of mood I'm in that I can just get on Spotify or even go old school and get a CD, pop on Nevermind, and that would just be like my go-to album. Um, another cool thing about it is you can go from song one to song 13, knock out the entire album in only 49 minutes. That's like my commute to work. So if, on a really good day, I can knock that album out twice on the way to and on the way back. So for my favorite album, I'm going to go with Nevermind. Um, favorite song. This was this was really, really, really tough. Um, but if you were to guess that Smells Like Teen Spirit is my favorite song, you'd be wrong. Oh. It's not. It's probably one of my least favorite songs on the entire album. And maybe wow. even one of my least favorite songs of all 102 of their songs. Um, I probably have 10 or 15 favorite Nirvana songs. So really different. It was really difficult to narrow it down to just one, but if I had to say my favorite, favorite song, I'm gonna go with Drain You, which is on the Nevermind album. Um, like I said, when I, I first heard this, like I said, when I was 11 or 12, and I thought it was a cool song, and I'm just, I've always, always liked this song. It, it starts off like in a typical Nirvana fashion. You've got Cobain and he's just on his guitar and he's just doing his vocals and this goes on for a few seconds. And then you've got Dave Grohl and you've got Chris Novoselic that come crashing in on their instruments and they just rock out for the rest of the song. Um, to me, like Drain You is like peak Nirvana because Kirk's lyrics are so good and his vocals are really good in this song. Um, Dave Grohl, if you go, just go listen to it. He is hammering the whole song. And like I said, you've got, like I mentioned before about Nova Selleck, where he'll just transition in the way he does. You'll hear that a lot and drain you how he transitions from that very first where it's kind of like just Kurt and the guitar. Then you hear the bass come in and then they start jamming out. Um, it's been described as a love song or maybe even just a song about love. It's, it's really, really, really hard to interpret this song. Um, 
there's a guy, let me find it, by the name of Michael Azerod, who did a uh, biography called, called uh, Come As You Are, the story about Nirvana. And I guess this guy was able to kind of pick Kurt Cobain's mind a little bit back in 93, 94. And he said that Cobain had told him that the lyrics made him think of two brat kids that are in the same hospital bed, which makes no sense whatsoever. So how do you get a love song out of that? But it's, it's kind of how unique the song is because that's how, that's how his lyrics were. Um, one really, really, really interesting thing about this song is how Nirvana wasn't really one to do like a, a cookie cutter of like most songs you hear where it's like, okay, you have first verse, you have your chorus, you have your second verse, then you have your chorus again. Then, oh, here's a guitar solo. We're going to do the guitar solo. Now we're going to do our third verse. And then we'll do the chorus two times at the end to really just hammer down our chorus to them. They weren't like that. Um, and this song is kind of a nod to kind of like what they would do to people to kind of mess with people. Because I know like one of the first times I heard this song, we, we did the first verse, we did the chorus, we did the second verse. And I was like, okay, here comes the solo. No, what it is is literally 17 bars of random noises. You have noisemakers, you hear a squeaky toy and you hear like a aerosol spray can, like a like spray paint spraying. That's what you hear for the whole 17 bars where you'd hear a, uh, a guitar solo. And that's just kind of, to me, like this sums up how Nirvana was, how unique and how just again, they would go against the grain on everything. There's a lot of imagery that's also in the song that's predicted because Kurt, he was really, really fascinated with um, anatomy, particularly like human anatomy. If you've ever seen the, uh, the cover art for In Utero, it's literally uh, anatomy of the female body, but in a very, very weird way that Kurt would do. And um, there's a lot of medical themes in this song, kind of like what he was fascinated with was a lot of medical things. And it kind of also kind of gives a nod a little bit about their album in utero because of just how fascinated he was with anatomy. The whole song was full of little cryptic messages about anatomy. Um, Kurt himself claimed that he made up most of his lyrics on the spot for this song, which he did a lot for a lot of his songs. But he did point out that it was extremely important that he got the opening line on there about one baby to another says I'm lucky to have met you he said that that part of the song that is what he really wanted to hammer in to the audience it was voted uh fifth in Rolling Stone's readers top 100 Nirvana songs and in 2015 Rolling Stones ranked it number nine out of all 102 Nirvana songs so like a lot of people agree with me it's one of their better songs and what i thought was really cool is in an interview cobain which he didn't really give a lot of interviews he said that he cited drain you as one of his favorite compositions and he told rolling stone in a 93 interview that he thought it was as good if not better than smells like teen spirit the one that everybody knows one that has all the acclaim and all the awards he said that he likes this song maybe even better than that 
he said that he loved the lyrics and he really never got tired of playing them. And he said that maybe if it was as big as Smells Like Teen Spirit, then he probably wouldn't even like that song as much, which I definitely agree with him there. Hmm. All right, sir, Andy, tell me your favorite Alice in Chains album and also favorite song. Favorite Alice in Chains album is technically not even an album. Uh, it's an EP with only seven songs on it uh, called Jar of Flies. And I, in my opinion, is the most pure and real album from any of the big four in all of the grunge era, if you want to classify it as an album. Uh, they came off of a tour in 1993. They were strung out, literally, and needed to unwind. They went to the studio not to cut an album, to unwind they had no songs written when they entered the studio they just went in to cool off basically to come down from that grind of the road they went into the studio with no songs written no plans to record any songs and came out of the studio in only a week with a collection of songs they had written and recorded and had zero plans to release them, uh, but the producers heard them, thought they had to put them out, uh, put it out on the EP, and like I said, it is one of, if not the most pure, real, look inside the band albums of the entire grunge era, of at least of the big four. Um, like I said, there's only seven songs. It's mainly acoustic because uh, they, like I said, zero plans to really release any of these songs. But out of it, you get uh, probably what would be considered artistically uh, Allison Chain's best song, definitely the best artistic song written by Lane Staley, which was Nutshell, um, which is really just talking about his loneliness because he's he's strung out uh on drugs if i can't be my own i'd be better dead but also on that album is my favorite song and much like bennett uh favorite song changes nutshell could be a favorite brother could be a favorite uh but probably the most consistent because also it's the most pure, it's the most beautiful song Allison Chains has ever put out. Uh, and that's Don't Follow. It, it's a perfect mix. Uh, it shows everything in the band. You start off with Jerry, uh, songs written by Jerry. You start off with Jerry, just sing, it's just Jerry and a guitar. Uh, and then Lane comes in, they go back and forth at the end, they vocalize towards the end, those harmonies that are unbeatable. Uh, one critic called, said it was one of the best and referred to Cantrell's vocals and songs as some of his best work ever. And it finds the band at its most calm, reflective, and gently warming. Uh, for a band whose most of their music was the devils and demons of addiction they were fighting um that produced great music heroin is a terrible thing 
but for Nirvana and Alice in Chains, it has produced some fantastic music. Um, you look for the silver lining, but don't follow is we're going back to songwriting later, right? Are you still going to hit that point? All right. Yeah. I'm going to save this point for the songwriting point to keep that slow, uh, to keep this short. I mean, but don't follow. It's beautiful. It's melodic. It's, I wouldn't call it a happy song, but it's a warming song. It's a gentle song. Um, and really, when you le- read the lyrics, when you look at the lyrics and you hear the lyrics, the lyrics in and of themselves don't sound warming. Uh, but in a way, it has a weird way. I don't want to play you the whole song. I'm sure, Elrod, you've never heard the song unless you've heard it. With me. Probably not. Probably but there's something beautiful. There's something warming. There's something gentle to it. Um, and it's fantastic. Uh, like I said, Jar of Flies, my favorite album, EP, whatever. It's got Nutshell on it, which is probably artistically their best song. Uh, and my favorite song of Don't Follow. And one interesting point about Don't Follow was never sang live by Lane Staley. Yet I've heard it live with the current version uh, of Alice in Chains, another point that we will get into uh, momentarily. But one of their best songs, my favorite song, Lane Staley never sang it on the stage, ironically enough. All right. Well, kind of stole my thunder but as as you know every band every artist behind the song you've got to be able to write the song well you got to have a good songwriting technique so sir rut tell us about what is unique about alice and chains with regard to their songwriting jerry cantrell you know with a lot of bands with nirvana and probably 95% of bands out there, your lead singer, your front man is, is the vision. He, he's the driving force behind the band. But really when you look at Allison Chains, it's Jerry Cantrell. He's the most, he's the ultimate, the definitive guitar player of the grunge era. And he also wrote a vast majority, uh, co- he probably wrote or co-wrote 90% of Allison Chains songs. Uh, Lane Staley did do some. Lane Staley did probably artistically their best song in Nutshell. Like I said earlier, uh, Lane Staley did uh, Angry Chair by himself. But the rest of their big hits uh, were either written or co-written by Jerry Cantrell. And what is amazing to me about Jerry Cantrell songwriting and Lane Staley's for that point not to throw shade or anything at Nirvana, but when you hear Nirvana, when you're a teenager, when you're in your early twenties, at least like this with me, and I know it's been like this with at least one other person that's not in this room, but those songs hit you, Nirvana songs hit you, they mean something to you, they resonate to you. But as I've seen, as I get older, those songs don't Nirvana songs don't resonate as much with me as they used to. Now at that same age, Alice in Chain songs resonated with me. They hit home. 
they take your mind different places, which is what good storytelling, good songwriting should do. The songs right now in my early 30s, as opposed to being a teenager in my early 20s, Alice in Chains songs don't mean to me what they did then, but they mean something completely different that still resonates. It's like an Alice in Chains song changes meaning over time with where you are in life. And oddly enough, it's almost like they intended for it to be that way. I'm going to read two Lane Staley quotes. The first one is, our perception of songs that we've written, the meaning changes from day to day to whatever stage we're at in our life and careers. And I think that that will extend, I can say from personal experience, to the listener. And the other quote is, the songs are about things we were thinking and we wrote them down. And when you listen to them, whatever you think it's about, that's what it's about. Uh, They hit on so many, they hit on different levels at different times in your life. Um, There's a particular song, Brother, that at one point in my life, I'm not going to go deep in my feels on this show. Nobody's here to hear me go deep in my feels uh, and get emotional and sappy. Um, but there was that song to me at one point highlighted and accentuated a certain characteristic of my brother and my relationship. And then fast forward 10 or 15 years and that same song highlights and accentuates, uh, one of the components of our relationship, but a completely different component. Uh, than it did 10 or 15 years ago. Now that me and him are both older, we both have a kid. It, we're both at different parts of our life. It's the same song. Lane Staley's been dead for years. It's not a different song, but it's almost like it is a different song that fits the lifestyle. With me personally, Nirvana hasn't done that. Nirvana hit me hard at a certain age, but it didn't grow with me. It stayed where it was. Whereas Allison Chains, those songs have grown with me and mean something to me different than they did 10 or 15 years ago, but they still mean something and connect with me intimately even now after listening to them for 20 years. All right. Bennett, tell me about Nirvana's songwriting. Okay. Obviously Kurt Cobain was the mastermind behind the songwriting he wrote probably 99% of their songs. I know Dave Grohl is credited for a tiny, tiny bit, but like I said, probably 95 to 99% of it is Kurt. And he was a lyrical genius about how he would go about with his lyrics in a way that only Kurt really has. Um, and the fascinating thing with it is a lot of the times, he would just make up his lyrics on the spot. Uh, there's been counts where they go into the studio to record and they've got the, the beat, I guess you would say, or they've got the sound that they want and they may have a chorus and then they're getting ready to go and record. And then he just hammers out the lyrics like five minutes before they're set to record. And then they come out to be these genius songs that people still play today. Um, one thing about 
what Kurt did is he, I think I touched on a little before, is he didn't really follow the norm about how songwriting had been done and the and that the way he went about composing a song, it wasn't like a copy-paste blueprint of storytelling that people were used to. And I feel like that's kind of where a lot of people misunderstand Nirvana and misunderstand Kurt and his lyrics. Um, one thing that you can't really misunderstand is how passionate, how raw, how vulnerable he was in his songs and his lyrics. He, he told you his hurt. He wasn't afraid to show you his broken soul and how just how much pain he was in. But the way that he would go about doing it, he wouldn't just get on the microphone, oh, I'm, I'm hurting, I'm hurting, Linda, you know. Shout out to Sling Blade there. But he did so, in all seriousness, he did so like in a very cryptic way. He would be like intentionally contradictory of himself. Um, like smells like teen spirit, um, where he'd say, um, it's fun to lose and to pretend. And um, if you haven't had a chance to go listen to Lounge Act, listen to that one because it's full of contradictions. He says, um, don't tell me what I want to hear and I'm afraid I'm never going to fear. It's just full of contradictory things. Um, he also has a lot of sarcastic humor in his lyrics like lithium and in bloom where he says to sell the kids for food, obviously not, but it touches a lot on um, anti-establishment rebellion, nonconformists, which I'll go into that later. Um, also, too, he's very blunt and very serious when he needs to be. I think of like about a girl and come as you are as some of his songs where he actually instead of kind of being like sarcastic, he, he knew to make songs, too, that were meaningful and serious to him or to the audience. Um, a lot of his songs that he wrote were really deep and meaningful and they're so meaningful that they speak to generations of people 26 years after his death. Um, the way he does that is a lot of his lyrics are open to interpretation and he did that purposely and he would not elaborate on a lot of his lyrics. He did that on purpose so that even like today in 2020, people will find meaning in them. Um, I might listen to a song and I interpret it a certain way. And then Rudd will listen to this song, same exact song, and it fills him a certain way. And then you listen to it and you're like, well, I feel this way about it. And that's a way that maybe me and Rudd had never even thought about. Um, I know when you think of Nirvana, a lot of it is, a lot of people think about his songs about non-conforming, like I said, and just like anti-establishment. Um, let's let's rebel stuff like that but a lot of the other songs too like where Rudd said that they don't mean a lot to him now I've went back and listened to songs that I didn't really give them much thought to at the time but now that I am older there's a lot of songs that speak to me differently now than they used to um, he speaks believe it or not he speaks a lot about 
fatherhood and being a father, he touches a lot on women's rights, um, which to me is a big, 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 huge deal because we had just gotten out of the hair band where you had all your bands that pretty much materialized women, you know, as just objects. And Kurt kind of took that and said, we're not doing that anymore. We're going to actually, let's talk about their rights. Songs like Polly and Francis Farmer have Revenge on Seattle are a couple of the bigger songs where he kind of touches on women's rights. He talks a lot about love, which is strange to think from him, but he really did. And um, he was kind of before his time too, because he was very, very open about gay rights even. Um, he would even sometimes wear a dress and just be like, you know, I'm heterosexual, but it, it's, it doesn't make a difference, you know, if I'm in this dress or not, I'm still the same person. And you idolized me before when I wore the flannel shirt. Now here I am in a dress. He would wear a dress on stage, you know, just to kind of prove a point to people like, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. And this was back in, you know, early nineties where it was a big, big, huge taboo. And we're a lot more open now to it. I feel like he was way before his time on that. Maybe some people can go back and kind of, look at that and kind of open their eyes to a little bit more about who he was as a person and not just, you know, the, the hurt soul that was a junkie. There was a whole lot more to him that people don't really realize. Um, you know, touching back on about how he leads songs open to interpretation. I think this is genius because just think back to when we were in high school Right, that's me and you, like 2000 to 2004, 2005, 2006. Think about some of the like rap songs that were huge at the time that everybody was playing. We're like, oh man, this song was awesome. You know, I love this song. This is the greatest song ever. And now think of it now. It's it's silly. Like it's embarrassing. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I like this song. This is embarrassing. You, like as soon as it comes on, I hear like the first little bit of them, like, oh yeah, I remember that song, then I turn it. And that's what's really, really um, fascinating to me about Nirvana, about Kurt Cobain is, even though he's been gone 26 years, I can still put those songs on and I love them just as much as I did as I did now. Um, it's a credit to his raw emotion and how he did have subjective lyrics that have kind of made Nirvana kind of timeless. And like you said, how the world still resonates with them today. All right. Well, that leads me to the subtopic. I want to know, Sir Bennett, tell me about the legacy of Nirvana. You've kind of touched on this a little bit before, but tell me what the legacy of Nirvana is today. To me, the legacy of Nirvana is that at the time they were, and even today, they're still one of the biggest bands of all time, even 26 years after the end of Nirvana. They're one of the best-selling bands of all time. And just run through a few facts. These are undisputed facts about Nirvana and about their legacy. They have seven MTV Music Awards. They sold 25 million records in the U.S. alone, 75 million worldwide. 
Rolling Stone ranked them number 30 of the 100 greatest artists of all time. Um, that's ahead of Michael Jackson. That's ahead of Queen. That's above Aerosmith, Pink Floyd. That's above all of them. Um, they had uh, four songs that was in Rolling Stone's top 500 songs of all time. Think about just 500 songs of all time when Nirvana by themselves had 102 and that's just one band. And they had four in the top 500 with Smells Like Teen Spirit being number nine. Um, all three of their official albums, like they had a few little side releases like Unplugged and all that stuff, but all three of their albums hit in the top 500 of all time. And Nevermind comes in at number 17. Um, they're also, if you get, if you get on Wikipedia and type in best-selling band of all time, they come in right around number 80 of best-selling band of all time. Um, touching back on Rolling Stone, they have the number one best-selling album of the 90s. That's Nevermind. I think I touched on that before. But what's also incredible is they also had the number seven best album of the 90s in, in utero. And in 2014, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So to me, Nirvana wasn't just part of the grunge movement. To me, they were the grunge movement. Hey, Sir Rutt, tell me about the legacy of Alice in Chains. When you look at Alice in Chains, they're still playing today. They're still making music today. Um, when you look at the legacy of Nirvana, it's all around Kurt Cobain, and rightly so. Uh, he was the driving force, uh, just as many people assumed Lane Staley was. But Lane Staley has gone now and Allison Chains is still a thing. They're still a successful thing. Uh, they're still uh, doing a lot of concerts. One of their best albums they ever put out uh, was the first album they put out after Lane Staley had passed with William Duvall, who is not Lane Staley by any means, uh, but nobody is. Uh, William Duvall's as good as they could do. It is, they could not do better than Duvall um, as far as replacing Lane Staley. But they're still making music today. And I think the legacy of Alice in Chains is that it is about the brutal honesty and it's about the pure music and it's purely about the music, which I'm going to hit in closing arguments, I think was what Kurt Cobain wanted in Nirvana, but Nirvana ended up, much to Cobain's chagrin, becoming more of a mainstream thing, and Cobain became an idol. Uh, Cobain became a big, you know, he surpassed the band because he died so early, had something to do with it. He was a genius, don't get me wrong, but that adds to the legacy. Elvis was never as big as he was when he died. John Lennon was never as big as he was until he died. Kurt Cobain dying, do not take this in the wrong way, but was a great career move for his legacy. 
But when you look at grunge, grunge is supposed to be anti-establishment. It's supposed to be about the music. And even though they didn't want to, Nirvana kind of got out of that. Whereas Alice in Chains had a lot of success. Man in the Box was the number two most played song on the radio. The Hun Smells Like Teen Spirit, uh, from the year 2010 to 2019. Dirt is one of the best-selling grunge albums ever. It's critically acclaimed, and it's sold a lot of albums. A lot of music buffs will look at, at and praise Jerry Cantrell and how great of a guitar player he is, how great of a songwriter he was they look at lane staley and cantrell's harmonies and how they transcended what should have been possible in music yet there's a lot of people like i said when you listen to nirvana you think you're a grunge fan but they only have heard nirvana whereas allison chains had their success but they stayed true to the music they stayed into the music they stayed into that grunge mentality of anti-establishment purely about the music and you know you wonder what if and this is probably a terrible argument to make and no disrespect at all to kurt cobain but what if lane staley had died in 94 and not 2001 would that have shot allison chains up to a Nirvana level? Probably not. I think Nirvana still would have been seen by the mass audience as a step above. But Cobain's death vaulted Nirvana. And so people now will see Nirvana and think they're the greatest thing ever. Nirvana was a great band. But if we're looking at the best grunge band and looking strictly at the music which is the core of what grunge was. I think Allison Chain's legacy is going to be that they were the epitome of grunge. You know, I should deduct points from you, right? Or you totally stole my thunder on one of my follow-up questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you have both of you have given me a lot to ponder. I've just got two follow-up questions, and I'll go ahead and ask the first one, even though you stole my thunder. I should did that points. But let's say that Nirvana and Alice in Chains did not lose any members in the nineties in the two thousands. In two thousand twenty, tell me how they would look right now in terms of perception, in terms of touring, in terms of how they would be perceived today. I'll start with you, Andy. How would Allison Chains look? I'm sorry. How would Allison Chains look if everybody um, was at full strength? And tell me how Nirvana would look in your estimation, too. Honestly, I don't think Allison Chains would look that different um, than they do right now. And I think that speaks to how true they are to the music because Lane Staley had his problems and was out of Allison Chains. He went to do Mad Season and some other stuff. And Allison Chains weren't together when Lane Staley died. Um, if he hadn't died when he did, he might have died later. I mean, he had a drug problem his entire life. 
Um, and they very well could be exactly what they are now with William Duvall, except everybody would hate them now because it wasn't Lane Staley by choice instead of not Lane – like the poor guy in Journey right now. Everybody hates them because it's not Steve Perry, and Steve Perry is still alive, whereas nobody hates Allison Chains that uh, Lane Staley's not there because he can't be. <laughs> um, as far as what Nirvana would be, in my opinion, I don't think I don't think they would still be together. I think Dave Grohl couldn't have survived long in Cobain's. I think Grohl would have split off to do his own thing. I think Cobain would have gotten tired of of the famous life, which he kind of did anyway, but maybe if he'd have left it uh, in another way and went underground and, and just did music. I think Nirvana would still be highly regarded. We would still sit, be sitting here talking about Smells Like Teen Spirit. We would still be talking about uh, how Nevermind's one of the greatest albums of all time. But I don't think we would hold Nirvana on so much of a higher level if Cobain had yeah. just gone away, which by all intents and purposes he wanted to do. I don't think that we would they would be held in this high regard if he had just went away as opposed to, you know, taking his own life, supposedly, allegedly, uh, in 94. Courtney Love did it. <laughs> Sir, Bennett? another podcast. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe it went that long in this show before somebody mentioned that. <laughs> to me, if Nirvana was still around in 2020 it like like Rudd said it would be completely completely different um like you touched on with Dave Grohl Dave Grohl I said his passion wasn't for drums even though he was a heck of a drummer um his passion was doing what Kurt was doing he wanted to be that guy that was the inspiration of the band um he wanted to do guitar that's what he was better at than drums and he wanted to do the vocals and he wanted to do the lyrics even though he got to do some of the lyrics that they did he wanted to be that guy and he got to be that guy so i guess that worked out for him um as far as for uh chris i could see him as being the guy that still carried on nirvana's legacy i think we would still have him he would, I feel like he would take over as kind of the the main guy of the group. And honestly, there would probably just be a rotation of people like you see on a lot of bands now that like, oh yeah, they used to be Nirvana, but you know, it's different now. They, they wouldn't have the same sound as they did. They wouldn't have that same edginess to them. So even though it would still be the band Nirvana, it it wouldn't be anything like what we had for those five years from 89 to 94. Um, going on to Kurt, Mike Rutt said, like, he didn't want the fame. It's kind of like he did. He wanted to be the superstar, but he didn't. And he got just what he wished for. He wanted to be, um, you know, anti-establishment. I'm going to 
you know, lead this revolution, but at the same time, I'm going to hide in the, in the shadows and it's not possible. Um, I feel like Kurt would have probably quit music altogether because that's just the type of person that he was. Maybe, maybe even as early as 94, 95, he's just like, you know what, I'm done. Even when they did the In Utero album, um, a lot of the songs that you hear in um, Nevermind are kind of songs that are constructed for radio play. You know, they're, they're catchy, you know, you sing along to them, and um, they just, they're, they're great songs to sing along to, everybody knows them, but then whenever you get to In Utero, that was more of this dark, raw side of Kurt that people, maybe his close friends had seen, but the people that bought the CD or went to the concert or saw him on MTV on that Smells Like Teen Spirit uh, music video, that's the type of Kurt that they didn't see. And the reason that, and even the way that it was produced was a lot more grittier, I guess, where Nevermind was more polished. They kind of went back to that grittiness in, in Euro because that was Kurt's way of kicking back from that success that they'd already reached from Nevermind. So you're looking at three albums in 1993, and he's already starting to push back from everything that they'd become, even whenever they would do songs for, um, I guess I forgot what, I forget which one it was, but they wanted to sing one of their more original songs, one that I think, I, f I forget which song it was, but you can YouTube the video. They were forced to play Smells Like Teen Spirit. And so Kurt's way of saying, you know what, I'm not gonna sing this, especially with they were going to not only let, they were gonna make them play the song, but at the same time too, they were gonna kind of like overdub over top of them, kind of like lip syncing. So what Kurt did is he, whenever he was playing the guitar, he was doing it like this, like his hand is like this. And um, he even goes to like put the microphone in his mouth when he goes to sing, just like completely butchers it because he was fed up with people telling him what to do, how to do it, when to do it, that went along with the fame. So I already see where he was starting to kind of grow old of that rock star lifestyle that he really wanted just a few years earlier. Um, Kurt was also a really, really, really good artist. Um, drawings, paintings, um, sculptures, and even some photography. So I could see him um, giving up music completely altogether, not singing any more songs, and just completely abandoning his fans and going off and doing like, like Rutt said, maybe he would go underground again and start a new band or maybe he would just quit all together and just like do art from his home or whatever, a studio, something like that. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I'd see like there, there wouldn't really be a Nirvana today. There's no way. And that kind of, I guess that does kind of lend itself to their legacy of, you know, as quick as they came onto the scene, they were done. So I guess there's something to that that people kind of gravitate towards.
it was kind of like a like a shooting star somewhat kind of um as far as Allison Chains I'm I'm going to go with like what Red said I don't think they would be um as different as they were back then um to me they're they're probably the better band more suitable for today's time than Nirvana how long are they going to continue doing this anti-establishment thing that they started in the early 90s you know I feel like and they would be able to recruit talent that could come in and still give Allison Chains the credit and um, still kind of serve the original members correctly. They would do them right. I feel like anybody that came in and tried to take on that Nirvana persona wouldn't be able to do them right. All right. Well, that brings us to closing arguments. So, Sir Bennett, I think you started out with opening statements. So, as such, how about you close this for us tonight and tell me why Nirvana is better than Allison Chains? To me, Nirvana is the ultimate underdog story. Everybody loves an underdog story. Um, they were just the underground band that had massive success unexpectedly and they really did become like the voice or band wherever you want to call it of a whole entire generation generation x they get uh, a lot of kickback because of technically um their music style is kind of more like simple notes to play on a lot of their songs so people say oh well you know they're not that great because you know, these songs are really easy to play. But think about this. Think about all those kids that pick up a, uh, a Nevermind album. I don't know if they still have albums. Maybe not. Maybe they have the, the vinyls. Those are still popular, I guess. And they put it on or they, they get on Spotify or they get on YouTube, whatever they get on. And they type in Smells Like Teen Spirit. And they hear those simple chords and they're like, dang, this is awesome. I've never heard anything like this because all we hear today is the same copy and paste stuff that gets shoved down our throat. We don't have that um, personality that you see from what we had in the 90s. So somebody, like a 16-year-old kid, whatever, picks up a guitar and is like, you know what, I'm gonna start playing this. And then they learn to play Nirvana songs, and then they start to learn to play their own songs. The next thing you know, they may be the next big thing, all because they heard a simple song that they, it gave them inspiration to play. Um, they're kind of proof that you don't have to be the best at anything to make good music and to touch people's lives. Um, to me, that's not really what music's about. I'm, I kind of lean more towards the artistic side of stuff in my background, but to me, like music is an expression. You could have somebody that, um, picks up a guitar and they're terrible at it. But if they're playing it with heart and emotion, to me, they're making music. And that's kind of like what Nirvana did. They didn't care about how good it was or how bad it was. You know, he was just conveying how he felt. And um, I think that's a, a way how a lot of people connect to him. Um, 
Nirvana meant a lot of things to a lot of different people. And that's what they were really good at. Um, what one person could appreciate Dave Grohl for his drumming, and that's what they gravitate to. Some people could appreciate how uh, Kurt's lyrics are, and that's what they gravitate towards. Or maybe there's an aspiring bass player that just really likes the way that Novoselic held, held it down there. So maybe that's what they gravitate to. Um, Dave Grohl himself said that you can sing a song or that we, we can sing a song to a group of 80,000 people and you have 80,000, 85,000 people singing it back to us for 85,000 different reasons. Um, to me, um, I seen a thing where it, Cobain had said that his artistic vision that he wanted to convey um, not only in his music, but just in his entire um, art, his drawings, his paintings, everything. Um, and it's very evident too, if you look on his, um, his albums, he, he designed all their album covers. Um, you've got, just to hit on this real quick, you've got um, the two more notable ones, and never mind, you've got the little naked baby underwater swimming for the dollar bill. Um, that kind of had two different meanings to me and I flip flop on which one I think it really means. There's one way you think of how at an early age, you're kind of ingrained in your mind, you know, that you want to grow up and be successful. You ask a kid in like first grade, what do you want to be when you get older? Oh, I want to be rich. I want to be, you know, a star. So you've got the baby that's already chasing the money. Sometimes I think it's this, but other times too, I think that, it was Kurt's way of sneaking in how they had already sold out on the Nirvana album because they had hired this producer who was a big shot. Um, I forget his name, but that's what gave them that polished sound. They were already starting to sell out. So you kind of put that imagery of the baby swimming towards the dollar bill as that being Nirvana swimming towards the money just kind of his way of his sarcastic humor and also too on in utero that um that picture of the anatomy of the woman is a drawing that he did so it just kind of goes to show his artistic vision on not just his vocals but anywho he said that he wanted it to be strange fierce kind of weird but also beautiful at the same time and to me that's exactly what nirvana was All right, start right. Take us home. Allison Chains is the most real, true to the music band of the grunge era. Allison Chains was bigger than any one member. Nirvana when Cobain died, was done. It was over. Like Ben had alluded to, there was a good chance that Nirvana was over soon anyway, uh, even if Kurt Cobain was alive. And uh, I believe wholeheartedly that Nirvana could not survive without Cobain. But this isn't an argument of who was better, Allison Chains or Kurt Cobain. It's who was better, Allison Chains or Nirvana. 
Allison Chains lost their front man. The band broke up and came together again after Lane Staley had already died. And they're still making music today. They're still successful today. They're bigger than any one person. And if Cobain had just left and not died in 94, I think the luster that Nirvana has to the mainstream uh, would not, it would be there, but it wouldn't be as strong. Um, like I alluded to earlier, the songs change as you grow with Allison Change. Where you are in your life, that's what those songs mean. That's what Lane Staley said they meant when they wrote them uh, in the early 90s, and that's what the songs mean now. I think the biggest point that I'm going to make, and it's the last point I'm going to make, we talked about how Kurt Cobain didn't want the fame. He didn't want the glory. He wanted it to be about the music. He wanted it to be about the art. And that's what Allison Chains was. Allison Chains was what Kurt Cobain wanted Nirvana to be. He wanted it to be about the music. He wanted it to be true to the music. Now, for reasons due to his own genius, um, Nirvana well shot back past that, but that is the attitude of grunge. It's about the music and only about the music. It's not about the establishment. It's not about the Grammys. It's not about the billboard. It's not about the mainstream. Allison Chains has dipped their toe into that level, but they've never springboarded. Like I said, if Lane Staley had died in 94, who knows? Um, but Allison Chains is what Kurt Cobain wanted Nirvana to be. Allison Chains is the definitive, and in my humble, honest, sweet, dear, loving opinion, the best band of the grunge era. And this has been a really hard argument because I really like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. Uh, and honestly, do you have your winner picked already in your head before you announce it? I do. It? I do. Okay. Then don't change it after I say this. No matter who you pick in this argument, and even if you threw in Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, you're not necessarily wrong. The lot, all of this is a matter of opinion. All were great bands. Nirvana's a fantastic band. Allison Chains is more of my cup of tea. And like I said, I conceded the points that I knew. I'm not going to sit here and try to argue that Dirt was a bigger album than Nevermind or that Mike Starr was a better bass player uh, than Nova Selle. So I'll just give you the obvious points, but dead gummit, my points where I had a chance to take a shot, I did. Now give me a win, Rod. <laughs> Here's how I score this. I, I initially was going to, you know, give a point for open and give the point for this, but here's what I've done. I don't think there's any doubt that when you look at the sum of the parts of each of the bands, that talent-wise, I think that Nirvana had better talent. When you look at Dave Grohl, when you look he, at... He doesn't agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Grohl I'm to give you a win here. You're on thin ice. <laughs> Dave Grohl in 1991 was not Dave Grohl in 2020. I understand that, but looking back, looking back now, 
I think that longevity wise, you got to say that Alice in Chains, I mean, they're still playing music today. I mean, Nirvana imploded after Cobain died. Oh, this is really tough because I thought this was going to be a slam dunk. But honestly, I did too, because you're not going to give me anything unless I work really, really hard for it. <laughs> and the war, if you this took is... a poll of the general public, 90, 95% are going to say Nirvana. This was an uphill battle for me from the start. Continue, Your Honor. That's right. That's right. You finally gave me some respect. You know, and I think we should record this for history right here. That he, Tonight is April 20th, 2012. I finally get my... <laughs> <laughs> If I give you credit on 420, does it really count? No, it's not. <laughs> Here's the way I look at this. you got to look at... Just look at the, the polls of people in the music industry. What they vote best songs of all time. Nirvana has four inside the top 100. Is that right? Or is that four out of top 50? What did you say, Ben? What's the question? They had four out of top songs? Yes. Four of the top 500. Four of the top 500. How many does Alice in Chains have, Andy? You know? I don't know. Main, they didn't care what the mainstream media people that do these polls thought. And in all honesty, Cobain probably didn't either. But <laughs> I don't think so. I think you got to look at this. You got to look at the sum of the parts. You got to look at the legacy. The winner tonight is Allison Chains. Wow. All right. Just kidding. The, the winner tonight is Nirvana. <laughs> Did you see how happy oh, he was? He thought he won. <laughs> I was just checking the temperature in hell when you threw the swerve in there. Yeah, I, wow. there's no way you can go against Nirvana on this. Are you serious? I mean, you look at the yes, seven. I'm like, serious. I don't know. This closing argument was pretty good. Your logic is flawed. If you want to tell me that Nirvana is a more talented band, your logic is flawed, at least if we're speaking musically. This is the final judgment. The appeal. <laughs> no appeal rights. No appeal rights here. All right. Well, this is the worst like this argument's done. not done. <laughs> Do what? I feel like this argument's not over. Probably <laughs> not. No. We may have to come back to this sometime. All right, guys. That, possibly. All right, guys. That uh, For those of you watching, if you're still watching at this point, that went really long. Um, but it was informative. It was a crap finish, but it was informative. Um, but, yeah, we're going to do this more often. I don't know. Uh, if, what's it been, two weeks since the other episode? So I don't know if we'll do it mm -hmm. bi-weekly. We may do it weekly, uh, depending on the reception. Uh, guys, like the video. Let us know what you think of the video. Like the page. Share the page. Tell all your friends to come check us out. Uh, if you think we're great, tell them we're great. If you think we suck, lie and tell them we're great. Uh, send them this way. Uh, we'll try to think of another thing. I'm going to put a post tomorrow as you're hearing this. In reality, it's two days from us right now. Uh, but I'm going to put a post on the page and ask uh, for some ideas. 
because we had some hard times coming up with another idea. I've actually had a few people give me suggestions and I'm going to compile a list. Uh, so, you know, if you guys want to shoot us some ideas, we'd greatly appreciate it. Uh, again, thanks for sitting through this. Thanks for watching. Uh, if you think Elrod's a crap judge, which I personally think he is right now. Hey, don't disrespect the judiciary. Don't disrespect the judiciary. Courts out of, courts out of session. You dismissed. Um, but uh, it was a crap finish, but it was fun to do. Uh, Bennett, Elrod, thanks for uh, coming together on Monday night to uh, do this again. Um, thanks for having us. Uh, if I could add one thing to people yeah. that are listening that um, – Maybe they've never really listened to either one of these bands so much. Maybe they heard a couple of their songs. I hope that we gave some insight to where you go back and you really start listening to some of these songs. And maybe they can mean something to you and impact your life in a way. Or maybe you feel a certain way and then you can kind of go to that song then. Just go out and start listening to some stuff you haven't listened to. Yeah, Elrod. Yeah, I know you're not a huge Nirvana or Alice in Chains fan, and my point to that would be, don't just listen to the popular songs. Bennett no. is not a fan of Smells Like Teen Spirit. Not Man in the song. Box, which I feel right here in this little square. Man in the Box is, is Alice in Chains' probably most notable song. It's more towards the bottom half of my favorites uh, and of their good ones. So don't just listen to the popular songs. Find a band you like. Listen to them for the songs that aren't popular, Elrod. Um, find those hidden gems. They're there. Gems. You got to find them. And with Alice in Chains and Nirvana, um, there's several. Expand your music knowledge, children. Elrod, you got anything to add? You thought you won. I, I, I snatched it from the jaws of victory. Just That's cold. Snatched it. was cold. I'm a little hot. I'm about half hot. It might be the flannel shirt. It's flannel. It's Probably go. is the flannel shirt. I had to pull this out of the closet. Anyway, all right, guys. Thanks for joining us. Hopefully you're not asleep or tuned us out uh, at this point. Uh, but again, let us know what you think. Let us know your ideas. And uh, we'll see you in the next video. Peace.